Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. One of the things about teaching through a book or a full chapter is we can't avoid some of the hard parts. And so I look forward to this journey together this morning through Titus. If you want to look in your Bibles at this time, it's towards the end, around 1 and 2 Timothy. Um, if you want to look on your phones, feel free to pull that up on the apps, and uh, I like to use BibleGateway.com or the Bible app. If you've been with us uh, over the last couple of weeks, you know that we're heading into a series, we're in the middle of a series on Titus, uh, just a simple three-chapter book. It's nice. I love it. I use the word punchy. It just kind of, hey, he has a few pages to get a message across. Paul is writing to a church planter. Uh, Titus. Um, he's actually kind of continuing the work that Paul started and equipping leaders. And one of the things about Paul's letters is that he usually begins with some kind of phrase like, grace and peace to you through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or some variation thereof. So if you weren't with us last week, I just want to remind us of this truth, that grace is a way of saying loving kindness the love of the Lord that covers all the wrongdoing that we've committed in our lives when we turn our hearts towards Him. It's, it's, a, it's just such a beautiful word, this, this grace, this charis, which we get um, like charity from, love, loving kindness, and peace, shalom, wholeness. It's not just like this feeling that you have in the moment that all is well. It's a wider arching, it's an overarching word that speaks of a life that's been set right and is moving towards wholeness and perfection. Um, it's this beautiful idea that no matter what happens, the peace of Christ can still reside in your heart and he is with you even through the storm. I'd like to share with you um, something from a couple of weeks ago the series before this was um, on Live No Lies. And Pastor Gene made uh, one quote that stuck with me uh, from this series. And he said, the deliverance of the world of sin comes from truth and love. The deliverance of or from uh, our fleshly desires, from sin, from the, uh, the, the sinfulness of the world, comes from a combination of truth and love through Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is a connecting point between the two series. I'd like to share a story with you. If you know me any, you know that I don't come from a charismatic background. I have a deep appreciation for it. Um, I happen to be a person that believes that demonic warfare is true. Um, I think every Christian should believe that. Um, but I also don't see the devil under every rock, or I believe sometimes that God and Satan are blamed for things they didn't do, because sometimes we human beings do some pretty stupid things. That's another whole sermon. But 
I want to tell a story with you, and I haven't told it in very many places, um, to kind of just illustrate this idea of grace, grace and peace and truth and love in Jesus. Um, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to speak uh, and travel with a friend of mine from India, Pratik Bhag, and um, had the chance to be with a group of young adults and teenagers at a gathering, uh, a renewal gathering, just a chance to talk about the history of the church and what does it mean to follow Jesus. And God did so many amazing things on that trip, one of which we held this conference in a Hindu school while students were having classes. I mean, just mind-blown what God does in some of these settings. But in the middle of the time there, we had a worship service where I just, uh, Pratik and I just looked at each other and said, we need to end with a time of blessing. And we had come with little bottles of oil, and all we were going to do is just invite anyone to come forward to receive a blessing of grace and peace in Jesus' name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all we were doing is just inviting people forward to just receive this gift, this reminder of the Lord's presence in their life. Halfway through this group coming forward, I see this youth group coming down the aisle, and they have this girl between them that I can tell they're treating with love. Um, and she, she seems quiet and subdued. And as I anointed her, her eyes immediately rolled back in her head. She began speaking in another voice, and um, she, she was not herself. And because I don't understand the language, um, it was clear that something else was speaking through her. We began praying over her, we took her to the side, and, and Pratik went and started ministering, and I kept working in this blessing. As a side note, a young man then came forward that was from a different village that actually was able to give a word of vision where he named three women and said, test this with the youth group, and it turned out that these were the three mothers of friends that were friends with this girl that had been praying against this girl to their gods that she would not influence their daughters towards Christianity. But all night long, that youth group prayed over that young woman. And in the morning, when she came to worship, she was a changed person, full of joy, up front, fully participating in worship. Her youth group was saying that she was the one that they remembered her being and she had been restored. Now, I'm going to say something to the youth here. Whether it's demonic oppression or something that's gone wrong in the world that's man-made, when you are walking with somebody in love and peace and shalom and truth, you're walking with them. You're not condemning them. And what wrecks me about this story is if the youth group cared so much and there was no judgment, that they carried her before the presence of the Lord for healing. Paul says in another place in Scripture where he says, we need to speak the truth in love. And some of us have had people use that phrase to speak abusively into our lives, to say, I'm telling you the truth. Shut up. You don't know the truth. The actual phrase means truthing in love. 
There's nothing in that Greek word that says speak. It's truthing in love. And I believe this is what we're talking about when we say grace and peace and truth in love, is that when we come to somebody that we love in community and we want to speak truth that the Lord has given to us, our first priority is for that person to thrive, to grow in the image of Jesus, not to tear down, not to dismiss. We come first, truthing in love. Amen? So I know that's an intense story, um, and I know that that is maybe directly speaking to demonic possession, but I believe that these truths of desiring grace and peace upon people, our companions in the journey, is, is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of even the vision of this church. And I'll read that to you and head into the chapter. Restored vision is restoration and peace are hallmarks, hallmarks of restored church. A community church that gathers to worship, is empowered to serve, and invest in relationships. To know Christ is our ultimate goal. To live and grow infused by his spirit, acting on behalf of local and global neighbors is our next move. So let's turn to the middle of Titus and figure out what's happening here. I'd like to do something a little different this time. I think at the end of the chapter is where we should begin. In verse 15, it says, These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So what are these things that we're supposed to teach? I believe that that is encapsulated in verses 11 through 14. Let's go ahead and look at that. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's break that up into a couple of sections and see what's happening here. First of all, we discover that the grace of God is salvation for all people. This gets at the heart of one of my favorite verses in the Bible, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That we might have eternal life. God so loved the world in that passage is cosmos, the whole world. And when he says eternal life, it's life of the ages, not just for the future. God's grace is salvation for all, the cosmos, everybody. He desires for them to have salvation, healing, hope, restoration. I started kind of just riffing on this, right? This is, he wants salvation for my kids. He wants salvation for my boss man. He wants salvation for the teachers that have been in my life. He wants salvation for the dude that lets his dog poop on my front yard. 
I'm starting to get a little close to personal here now, right? Like the guy that cut you off on the way to church, the person who stole your online identity, okay? He desires it even for our enemies, that we might have salvation and restoration. Of all the people, Paul knows this, the one who persecuted the church for years, maybe even put Christians to death before he became a Christ follower. But another thing that this passage teaches us is that it has not just appeared to all people, it teaches us how to live now. He teaches us how to say no to ungodliness. When we experience the grace of Christ and it changes our life, we want to do things differently, not out of shame or obligation, but because we've experienced his forgiveness and we want to give praise and honor and glory and set ourselves apart for the one who has given his life for us. You see, experiencing God's grace gives us the ability to actually have a backbone to be able to say, I'm not from that anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore, Lord. And sometimes I may stumble and I may not always be able to follow through, but he's there. He picks me back up. He takes me out of the muck. He sets me on the rock that is higher than me, gives me a firm foundation for my feet, and allows me to say, no more in the name of Jesus Christ I'm done, and I'm letting you fill in where you feel that those areas of self-control are needed. Let me repeat this again. That I, do, I believe God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy. I believe that God is a God that desires for us to thrive, and the goal, the, the goal post, the bumpers that he puts in the bowling lanes, whatever you may want to call them, are for us to have a thriving life with him not to keep us from having more fun. And it says that we are to wait for the blessed hope. I know that there are some in my circles of the Christian faith where we sit and we wait for the blessed hope, and it kind of feels like, Lord, come now. Let's get this over with. And they're just sitting there, kind of like the, um, the disciples at the end when they see Jesus go up into heaven. And the angel comes over, and he's like looking at him, and he's like, why are you all staring up into heaven? Like, you got, you got work to do. Like, let's get going. Let's move. Let's live. Let's go about business. We got people to tell about this guy that just went up into heaven. He has done a powerful work for us. He's pulled us out, and he put us on a rock that's higher than us. He's purified us. He's washed us. We're going to talk more about that next week. But he set us apart, and he wants us to live victoriously. And he's saying to us, in this passage, that while we wait for the blessed hope of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all from wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And it takes me to my next point about this, is that God's grace doesn't just give us salvation. It doesn't just help us have the backbone to say no. It makes us eager to do good. Titus, the book of Titus is all about making sure that right belief is connected to right action. And so just believing, it doesn't stop there. 
I believe it's in John where the disciples say, Lord, what is it that we must do that we might do the work that you have sent us to do? And he says, you must believe in the one whom he has sent. But it doesn't stop with belief. It means that belief generates action, an eagerness to do good. Can we say that, that people who are in our lives can look at us and say that since we've said yes to Jesus, that they see an eagerness to do what is right, that draws them in, that makes them want to know more about this Savior that we, we follow? I believe that this section is then illustrated by the relationships that are mentioned at the beginning of the chapter down to verse 11. And I'd like to just talk with you about that now. You see, I believe it's in community that we have the opportunity to live together and experience grace to receive it and then also give it. I believe it's C.S. Lewis who talks about that when we're together with anybody for any time, we begin to realize that we all have sharp edges and we all prick and rub against each other in ways that cause pain. Anyone who's married knows that. Love you, Janessa. But that gives us the opportunity to receive and give grace. And what I love about this next section is I believe it's at the heartbeat of what Restore wants for its community. Sometimes I've heard people say, well, that's a really young church. There's a lot of young couples there. I don't know if there's a, a place for me, for them, uh, them boomers. But you know what? We all need each other. And I'm telling you to the older folk in this room, we really need you. There are a lot of young mothers in this congregation that would love to sit at the feet of people who have been there before. There are a lot of ladies that have not, they're not going to be giving any more births, and so maybe they can walk and invest in the lives of small children that are around them. I'm jumping ahead, but let's talk for a second about these relationships. What does it mean for us to be in community, and how is it that we're able to be eager to do that which is good, and how is it that we can be held accountable and have a backbone and say no to things? I think it's because God desires for us to be in a community of Christ followers to which we are accountable for. In the beginning of the chapter, it says older men to be temperate. In the middle, it says self-controlled. And you'll notice that almost every person in this list is told to be self-controlled which I don't think is something you can do on your own. What does it mean for an older man to be known for one who is full of love and endurance? What does it mean for an older woman to be reverent in the way that they live, to not be a slanderer? I don't think this is limited to the sexes here, by the way, but he says... What does it mean for us to guard our lips? And then they're in a position to teach young women to love their families, to be self-controlled, to be kind. What does it mean for you as a young woman to have an older woman come to you and walk with you in growing in the ability to be more kind? Sometimes, again, speaking from maybe a marriage perspective, I can speak 
the way that I think that I'm speaking, and it's fine. And I'm not aware of how it falls. I'm trying not to linger on anybody here. Like, I'm not making any long eye contact here, okay? Uh, I'll look at the screen. We need someone to tell us when maybe we thought we were kind and we weren't, right? Young men, be self-controlled. And again, I think this is for the young man and maybe Titus. I, I get a little confused in the way it's broken up here, but by doing good, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that we might not be ashamed. And then it says this hard passage, passage in here, it says, and teach slaves to be subject to their matters. Maybe it's another discussion. I'm just going to note that that's a different time, a different age, an economy, and relationships that we have moved, we have tried to move out of. But I would just note that it's very easy to lay in here, employees, consider your managers. Even if you have a harsh manager, what does it mean for you to work under that person in a way that is without blame? Don't blame your bad behavior on a boss who's hard on you. You have an opportunity to not steal or to be dishonest or to do something for personal gain. It's an opportunity for you to actually find that those coals of kindness heaped upon the head of your oppressive overseer might make them go, huh, how do I follow Jesus? What does that person have? Now, I'm going to move into kind of the end of where I'm going with this for an application. And I, I've debated on where to put this story, but I'm going to tell you, so I personally am so thankful for older people who have invested in my life, and this is my opportunity to give honor to a late friend of mine, Marty Daly. Um, when I first started wrestling with these passages, I began to pray, Lord, who can be in my life that can speak truth to me? And he placed a man in my life who was the same age as my father, but like a brother. So I'm going to tell you a story. <clears throat> I was in this church. We were having a prayer service, and these candles are all put in sand, and they were having a time of prayer. It's kind of like a taze prayer, if you've ever been around that. And there's like this big sand area with candles in it. And prayer time's going on, and I'm sitting towards the front, and um, I have my water and and everything, and I'm just kind of like, okay, Lord, you know, just praying and drinking the water and whatever. And then I noticed that the candles are starting to melt together, and they're not a single flame. There's actually, like, flames. Like, this is not a good thing, right? All the insurance people are going, oh. And I hear this voice in my ear, and it's my mentor saying, Tyler, like, you, you got to go put some water on that. And there, there, there's a person up front leading prayer, and so I slink. I slipped out, and I slink down so I'm not in the way of anybody. And I get up close to the altar, and I just tip my cup of water onto the flames. Well, anybody knows now, like, like oil and water don't mix. And the thing exploded. 
there's this wall of flame, sand, wax, all over the communion table. Everyone's like, what? I mean, it's like an explosion. I tend to be dramatic, but I'm not making it up, right, Janessa? Like, it was crazy. And there was a fireman in the congregation. He grabs the altar cloth, wraps the whole thing up, and runs out the door. And it all happens like that. For years afterward, I heard about, well, Tyler tried to quench the dying embers of this congregation, but, or tongues of fire were dancing on his head, you know. Um, so don't always follow everything your mentor tells you to do. But we had such a relationship that he could just speak into my life. He would simply say the words, how's your soul? Does anybody here have people in your life that say, how's your soul? I believe that the Lord wants us to live out what it says in Hebrews, to consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. I don't think that that's actually a verse that should be used to browbeat people in the church. I think that's a verse that says, God wants people in your life spurring you towards good work. I believe strongly that the Lord wants to answer prayer, that when you say, Lord, put two to three people in my life that can speak truth in love to me, truthing in love, that can carry me forward into a blessing of grace and peace, he will answer it. He has never failed me. There are people in this room that are part of that group of three or four or maybe even five in my life. But he had been faithful that when my friend Marty died of a glioblastoma a few years ago, he immediately brought another person into my life. And that was Pastor Gene. He will answer that prayer. I believe it strongly. John O'Donohue says that a noble friend will not accept pretension, but will gently and firmly confront you with your blindness. And such a friendship is creative and critical. It's willing to negotiate awkward and uneven territories of contradiction and wounded, woundedness. A noble friend is one who will not accept pretension but will gently and firmly confront you with your own blindness. Would you be willing to stand with me as we head into our time of closing? And even if you're watching online, if you can take this time to just pray that the Lord might reveal to you some names, make note of it in your phone or mentally. Just take this time, if you want, to just ask the Lord, are there just two or three people in my life that I can begin to walk with that they can say, um, how's your soul? Where have you stepped off the path and how can you come back? I believe he wants to answer that. I also know that there's a prayer team towards the back of the auditorium that wants to pray with you. Feel free to step out and go back and pray with them. If you want prayer for wisdom on that, they would gladly do that. Or if you just want them to pray the grace and shalom, the peace 
of Christ over you, just tell them that. Um, it's been a blessing and an honor to share with you today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family. <laughs>